Joe's Merrick's personal assistant. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're just in this little room, and he had to. He was like, "Yeah, want me to freshen up your coffee, sir?" <laughs> <laughs> Feed me some tacos, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. This podcast is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of WebStorm. Whether you're working with Node.js or building the front end of your web application, WebStorm is the tool for you. It has great code quality and code exploration tools and works with HTML5, Node, TypeScript, CoffeeScript, Harmony, Less, Sass, Jade, JSLint, JSHint, and the Google Closure Compiler. Check it out at jetbrains.com slash webstore. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 73 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have Joe Eames. Hey there. AJ O'Neill. Live again from Provo. Jameson Dance. Hey, friends. Merrick Christensen. Hey, guys. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we have two special guests this week, Pete Hunt. Hey, guys. And Jordan Walk. Hi. Since you guys haven't been on the show before, do you want to introduce yourselves? We'll have Pete go first. Sure. Um, So my name's Pete. I work on kind of like general React stuff these days, um, but I'm kind of my day job is... Uh, building the Instagram web experience. So kind of if you go to Instagram.com, we have a bunch of kind of like front end stuff you can play with and a bunch of uh, back end infrastructure that that you um, that supports all that. And so that's what I mostly work on. And we're big users of React at Instagram. So um, I ended up contributing a lot to the React core as well. So did you come from Instagram or from Facebook and then to work on Instagram? Um, well, it was actually a pretty good story just in terms of kind of the integration of the two companies. So um, I was originally at Facebook for a couple of years and, um, we acquired Instagram and they came in and they wanted to build a web presence and Facebook's core competency is definitely web technologies and Instagram kind of hasn't historically focused on that. So we were able to take kind of like the Facebook web expertise and like get Instagram up and running really quickly. So I came from the Facebook side, but the team is still very much, um, a separate team, you know, their own building, that kind of thing. So that's my background. Awesome. Sweet. And Jordan? Uh, so I've been a, an engineer at Facebook for a few years now, and I focused mostly on building applications with JavaScript and also creating JavaScript frameworks like React. And so uh, I've been working with Pete a lot and a number of other engineers building out this framework and um, fine-tuning it, optimizing it, and reaching out to the community, trying to engage them and um, just see if it, can, if, it, if it can reach a wider audience. Awesome. One question I have really quick, Jordan. I was looking at the contributors on React, and I didn't see your account listed. Uh, where, where is that on uh, GitHub? On GitHub, yeah. So we have a different process for um, for committing code to open source uh, repos. So we can commit internally or from the GitHub repo. And sometimes what you see is like a, a large set of changes being synced from our internal repo up to GitHub. And uh, we'd actually like to improve that. It, it sounds like a really good idea just to use GitHub as the authoritative repository. Uh, but we just have a little bit of work to get there. So sometimes you won't see um, exactly the history. It's not maintained correctly. Oh, okay. So Pete's getting all the credit then. Is that what you're telling us? 
Oh, that's uh, <laughs> so I wrote a lot of the documentation and we're like moving over components at, to GitHub as the source of truth. And so documentation is the first place that's or the first thing that's moved. So yeah, I'm, I'm stealing a lot of the blame. Nice. Now I, I was looking at react and, and I have to say on your page, your guides, why react? That's just an awesome title in and of itself. But, uh, anyway, um, it, it explains a little bit of what React is. Um, when I looked at it though, it, like most of the, let, let me put it this way. You say many people choose to think of React as the V in MVC. And then when I started looking at the, the code behind it and stuff, it really kind of felt a little bit more like more than just the V. Cause when I think of the V, I'm thinking templates and maybe a little bit of code to manage them. And React looked like a lot more, code and a lot less maybe markup mm -hmm. um yeah I, I can kind of so i i'm speaking at uh at js conf eu coming up and html5 dev conf so i've been trying to figure out like what the best way to message this stuff is so i'm just gonna like beta test it on you right now and you can just give me some feedback how about that <laughs> awesome do we get slides you know, I only have my little like outline in google docs right now no slides yet <laughs> <laughs> nice so we, um, we basically build, um, applications at Facebook a little bit differently than, um, kind of your traditional MVC. But the way that most people use React in the open source community is as the kind of view in an MVC framework. And so we've basically tried to build React such that, like, it doesn't matter how you're fetching data. Um, it doesn't matter how you're doing, you know, animations or, um, or Ajax or CSS or whatever, um, or even packaging your JavaScript. We're just a way to efficiently render UIs and gather user input, basically, like handle user events. And we've tried to, to really build like a solid foundation for you to, to kind of build your app how you want to do it. So just to give you like a little bit of, of background about it, we started, um, Jordan actually started building um, React in 2011. At this point, it's grown. We have hundreds of engineers at the company building thousands of components, and we're delivering this framework to hundreds of millions of end users. We support IE8 and above and all recent mobile devices. And we're really, really concerned about performance. And so, like, you know, we can get 60 frames per second on, um, you know, like a, a non-JIT iPhone, um, that kind of thing. So we're kind of like, I, I guess, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Can, can you give us kind of a common use case for, uh, for where uh, people are using this? Uh, sure. So a really kind of common case is that somebody's got a, a Backbone app. And so in my opinion, Backbone is like a really, really great way to manage your data, right? Like Backbone models and collections make a lot of sense. But I think that one common place where Backbone tends to run into a little bit of problems is that its views um, system are pretty unopinionated. And when you're really, really unopinionated about something, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to, if you just want to just get up and running and build something quickly. So we see a lot of people basically using React to implement their Backbone view. I think that's the easiest way for people to get started. You know, Backbone just gives you um, a DOM element, and then all you have to do is pass that DOM element into React, and React will render it and, and manage it for you. So I got to say, I think React is, is actually quite neat. I think I, I got some questions, though, particularly when it comes to the some decisions you guys made about getting, it sounds like, that 60 frames per second on a mobile device. I, if you guys are really able to do that, that is, that is very impressive. Yeah, um, could we get... I'm just... Thinking maybe there's some listeners here that don't have the context for that. Like, could you give us an idea of how difficult that is to get 60 frames per second on a non-jet iPhone? Well, it depends on what you're doing. So, for example, like, 
you know, if you're decoding lots of images, it's it's really hard to do that. But um, the point is that the the framework itself can run within um, within a, a single request animation frame. And you know, there are also issues with with garbage collection and stuff like that. But we're basically trying to to get it at the framework as quickly as possible. And so that involves doing a couple of things. Uh, for example, the core is written to minimize the amount of, of garbage that we generate. So whenever we, you know, dispatch an event, for example, we're pooling that event object. So um, every new event that comes in, you know, like every time you move your mouse across the page or something, we're not generating new garbage. Um, or at least we're trying not to generate any garbage. We also do some really cool things with how we we batch updates and how we we kind of batch reads and writes in the DOM. So React is all about building components. And a component, you know, if you look at um, Facebook, for example, and on every newsfeed story, there's a little box where you can can enter a comment um, and, and view comments and likes. If you drew like a square around that, that would be a React component. And every single component on the page has a life cycle. And um, we basically built it such that um, at certain parts of the life cycle, every component on the page reads from the DOM. And at another part of the life cycle, every component queues up the writes that it's going to do to the DOM so that we can execute them all batched. And the DOM historically has been very, very slow and kind of a, a source for, um, for like, not being able to get that 60 frames per second. So if you can batch those up together, you're much more likely to be able to get there. Awesome. I'm wondering, one, one thing that's kind of interesting to me is that React came out and you guys kind of, I wouldn't say shun, but you guys didn't go with the two-way data binding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I I think you largely articulated that was for the performance that you wanted to get. Uh, either that or the maintainability of how it scales. Could you talk a little bit about that decision? Um, yeah. I think that Jordan's going to probably want to take that. So I think there's value in having two-way data binding. But uh, a lot of times if you use two-way data binding, um, you'll notice that a lot of the times it could have been expressed with unidirectional data binding. And so if we could just make that unidirectional data binding so easy, because it's a common case, um, at the expense of possibly deferring or just not yet solving the two-way data binding problem, it can get you to a place where you can develop applications very quickly, and you still have options for two-way data binding, but then the framework isn't investing as heavily in those. So we do see value in that, and I think that there's room to experiment there. And we'd love to see the community contribute and come up with ideas there. I would say that there are some downfalls when you just automatically reach to that two-way data binding paradigm. It's inherently mutated. So unidirectional data binding can be functionally expressed because everything functions have an input and they have an output. So that's very much a a one-way data binding, right? So if you can express the majority of your application in terms of one-way data binding, you can write a very functional application that minimizes the amount of mutations. And the amount of mutations, um, when, when you increase the amount of mutations, your application complexity increases as well. So we're kind of like a forcing function at this point to help you minimize uh, the amount of application complexity that you actually build. Got you it. said that in lots of places you can replace two-way data binding with one-way data binding. Can you elaborate on that idea? It seems like they're solving oh, different problems. Yeah, sorry. I, I guess that's kind of misleading. There are times when people use two-way de- data binding and what I've seen with like sort of them more traditional two-way data binding MVC frameworks is somebody will jump to two-way data binding when they could have easily just used one-way data binding. They weren't using the opposite direction of the binding. They just kind of okay. like naturally jump to that. Now, there's other cases where people use two-way data binding 
you can still implement that in terms of one-way data binding with a, um, an explicitly passed callback handler that, that handles the attempt to change that value. So it's just basically, um, instead of having one, uh, one value that's kind of like a, a model that can react to changes that you pass down, you, you just simply pass two values. One of them is a one-way data binding reactive value, and the other is the change handler. So there's a way to do it right now. Um, the framework doesn't automatically support this, though we could imagine creating a plugin that, that lets you do this. Okay, that makes sense. One of the other questions I had is, is React has uh, this notion of kind of updating the DOM on change events, right? Similar to Backbone Views, is that that's correct, right? Um, what do you mean by updating the DOM on change events? Meaning, uh, for example, if there's a click event, I'm going to call set state, which will then trigger an event, which will call render. Um, so it's not an event like a like a browser event, but it it the system will eventually flush to the DOM, yeah. And that's what I wanted to ask is I've seen some kind of crafty things, particularly in the Ember JS framework, where they're kind of queuing up, you know, these they have this this notion of a run loop, and they're queuing up all these state changes to flush them all at once. Is that is that similar to how you guys have implemented it to get the performance? Yeah. So there's um, but I'm trying to think the the best way to to explain this, but we, um, uh, let's see. Okay. So when you get a, when the data changes in react, we basically to support kind of like scalable application development, um, reacts kind of guiding principle is mutation is evil and we should try to avoid it as much as possible. So the idea is that if your program is in kind of like state zero and then you transition to state one, and then state one is dependent on state zero, and then you transition to state two, which is dependent on state one, which is dependent on state zero. Um, it's really, really hard to think about and really hold the whole like possible states your program can be in in your head, right? Like that's how you end up in jQuery spaghetti where you've updated the DOM and then you have to check all these other cases that you may have, have changed a node and, and inserted into the right place, that sort of thing. Sure. So React, React was designed all around that. And so, conceptually, how you build a React app is that every time your data changes, it's like hitting the refresh button in a server-rendered app. So what we do is we we conceptually throw out all of the markup and event handlers that you've registered, we reset the whole page, and then we redraw the entire page. So, you know, if you're writing a server-rendered app, um, handling updates is really easy, right? Because you hit the refresh button and you're pretty much guaranteed to get what you expect. Um, sure. You don't, you don't get into these odd states. Exactly. Exactly. So in order to implement that, we've built basically, we, we communicate it as a, as a fake DOM. So what we'll do is rather than throw out the actual browser HTML and, and event handlers, we have an internal representation of what the page looks like. And then we generate kind of what the a brand new representation of what we want the page to look like. And then we perform this really, really fast diffing algorithm between those two page representations, DOM representations. And then React will compute the minimum set of DOM mutations it needs to make to bring the page up to date. And then to finally get to answer your question, that set of, of, of DOM mutations then goes into a queue and we can kind of plug in arbitrary uh, flushing strategies for that. So for example, when we originally launched React in open source, every set state would immediately trigger um, a flush to the DOM. That wasn't part of the contract of set state, but like that was just our, our strategy and it worked pretty well. Then this like this totally like awesome open source contributor Ben Alpert at Khan Academy built a new batching strategy, which would basically queue up every single DOM update and um, and state change 
that happened within an event tick and would execute them in, um, in bulk at the end of the event tick. And awesome. that was like, that was a pretty huge performance win on our ads create flow, for example. And you can imagine like, we, since we've made all of this pluggable, we have some other cool ideas that might be interesting. Like, for example, we just always flush at the end of a request animation frame. So if you get multiple AJAX requests coming back um, in a single animation frame, which is like a pretty common thing to happen, it's just as fast as if it was a single one. Yeah, that's that's actually a really interesting idea. Almost like you're just going to mutate the state and paint it, kind of how you would implement a Canvas app almost. Yeah. Um, Way more traditional UI. I mean, you get rid of a lot of the issues of writing against the DOM. Yes. Exactly, exactly. And um, I don't know if, if Jordan's going to agree with this, but... Um, there, there's this guy on online. I think his name is is Fabian something, and he 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 deconstructs the Doom three engine source code, and talks about how the game logic interacts with the renderer and interacts with the um with the graphics card, and it looks very similar to how we've structured React in that we have your application logic, which um, is kind of doing whatever you want, manipulating this fake DOM, and then we pass it to kind of this like rendering system that does that DOM diff and queues up those um, DOM operations. And then rather than OpenGL calls to a graphics card, we're just sending DOM mutations to the DOM. And so it was kind of a nice validation of this, the structure of React. Yeah, I think, see, that's really interesting. I, I think it's really great that we talked about this on the show because most people probably open up the React homepage and they say, okay, they're adding kind of a declarative aspect to Backbone. <laughs> but clearly you guys are doing way more than that, which is, which is awesome. One of the things that struck me is you said that your diffing algorithm was really fast, which typically wouldn't, it doesn't sound like something that was going to be fast. Can you um, kind of uh, explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so it's not just about the, like the CPU efficiency, but it's also about memory efficiency. But the, the, key, the key part here is that we're not doing this with DOM constructs. So when you manipulate a DOM node, you're likely breaking outside of the VM into some native code. And we believe that that context switching is actually very, very expensive. So we're doing this in pure JS representations, which is already a win. But one of the interesting things is that by default, this algorithm is just heavily optimized because we've invested a lot in it and it's very critical to our site. But there's also other hooks inside of the, the components that allow you to help guide that process along when it comes time to optimize. So by default, you can just assume everything re-renders. And for most cases, you'll never have to optimize anything. For your standard web page, for your standard app that you're building, you'll never even have to think about it. But we give you a way to hook into the component, into like at the component level, we give you a way to hook in and help tell React when it needs to update a certain part of the page and when it doesn't. But the really cool thing is that that optimization hook is totally optional and it can be added later and it doesn't become a, a core part of your development paradigm. So you're not prematurely optimizing your app when you don't even know what the general structure is going to look like. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. That's great. That's great. It seems like a really, um, really innovative idea to do it that way as well. I mean, I, re I really like that idea of just determining what's, what's different, what's not, and figuring out and, and repainting it. Obviously, when you think about implementing something like that, it sounds like, oh my gosh, it's going to take me a year to figure that kind of a thing out. Did you write your own DOM manipulation library or are you using something like jQuery? Um, we have our own DOM manipulation library. That's more or less what it sounded like. but It's just highly optimized for the, um, for the case of this like large, large flushes, right? If we used another library, it probably wouldn't 
probably would not perform as well. Mm-hmm. We, we don't actually do that complicated of DOM manipulations at the end of the day. We're like setting inner HTML, adding removing nodes, and modifying attributes on a node. And we have like a, a giant file in there called like, or it's not giant, but we have a file called, I think it's like DOM mutation strategy or something that basically says like, oh, you know, if you're updating the style attribute, this is the fastest way to do it and, um, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it is abstracted. Right. Uh, the event system, though, is, is interesting in itself. It's completely synthetic. And it's actually pretty standalone. You could imagine using just the event system in another framework. And what it is is it's, uh, it completely re-implements bubbling, capturing, and uh, stopping the propagation in a completely virtual way that doesn't rely on any DOM nodes at all. And so what's cool about that is it's, it has an injectable plugin system where you can write your own events. So, for example, we have an event called on enter on leave which is like, you know, Microsoft's enter-leave events, but it works in all browsers. And you can just sort of gracefully inject these plugins that sit there and listen to this raw stream of low-level um, keyboard and mouse events and infers higher-level ones. So you can write your own um, either, like, double-tap or long-press or anything like that and then share it with other people so they can easily use it. Hmm, that's really cool. And and one thing I really liked, and maybe I'm off base on this, but I, I believe you guys actually hoist all the events, right? I mean, that's that's something I think is really neat about the way you guys do it is you actually hoist all the event listeners up for performance sake. You mean oh, yeah. top? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, it's all just a single, like, almost all the events are just listening on, on the top-level document. So you get um, the event delegation performance boost for free. You don't even think about it. Yeah, which is, which is just awesome. So, like, an, another cool thing um, that is kind of implied by this is um, I have a branch. I'm not sure it's, it's really worth doing at this point, um, but it, it only took um, maybe a day or two to get your entire um, react app running in a web worker, um, <laughs> which has, is pretty cool uh, implications because, you know, we're, we're pretty paranoid about performance. And if you only do the DOM manipulations in the main thread, then it like makes, you know, scrolling a lot smoother and that sort of thing. Um, and so that, that, the reason we're able to do that so easily is for a couple of reasons. Like, first of all, we, we don't really, React barely knows that there's a browser, right? Only the event plugins know about the browser and the fundamental domination manipulation library knows about the browser. Everything else is in this synthetic fake browser world. So that's pretty sweet. The second thing that lets us do that is, um, since we have not committed to like a standard way to do, um, two way data binding, we're actually, um, the framework itself is never reading directly from the DOM. You know, we have to, the user themselves has to read from the DOM. So, um, the, a lot of the pain of like keeping the DOM and the, the virtual world synchronized is a lot easier without, um, using two way binding. Yeah. So one of the things I got to ask, if you have all this virtualization, et cetera, you know, you're working with strings, it seems like you guys wouldn't be far off from being able to run in the Node.js runtime. So people could render the React apps on the server. We already support that. That is um, a feature in 0.4 that came out like a month ago. Um, and we, we're fully supporting support running in Node.js. That is awesome. Wow. So if you stay tuned in the within the next week, we'll likely be open sourcing uh, like a starter app where basically it's like one click or, you know, NPM install and you have a fully server rendered application with like simple routing to pages and you just write your components as if you're rendering them on the client and they just work on the server only and they just work on the server 
they get the markup gets sent over to the client and the event handlers get wired up automatically and you don't even know what's happening that's awesome that is amazing and the, it's i don't know have you guys heard of um airbnb's render rendr uh, yeah. framework so yeah. they were kind of like um i was i was working on the server rendering feature um internally and then they launched and i was like man they stole our fire cuz they have like a really awesome kind of oh it runs both on the client and the server you don't have to think about it and so I, um, I ended up meeting up with those guys at Airbnb and within our 30 minute meeting, we were able to get React rendering within render. Um, and render, if you guys aren't familiar with it, is just a way to run a backbone app on, in Node.js or in the browser. And so there's a lot of cool advantages for, um, for those listening that like don't see what's so exciting about server rendering. Like we can serve up like the server rendered page to Googlebot, for example. Um, you know, and, and get your, get your, you're ranking up because, you know, Googlebot penalizes client rendered pages because of performance. You can also get that really, really fast first page load experience. So imagine like you write your JavaScript app just like, you know, you normally would, um, or your React app just like you normally would. And then you just flip the switch to turn on server rendering. Um, and suddenly you don't have to wait for the JavaScript to download for the user to see the initial page. You can also manage trade-offs on mobile devices. So for example, some mobile devices might, you might not want to render certain components in JavaScript. You might want to render them in the server and just parse the HTML. And we can do all of that. And it's actually, um, it's a pretty elegant situation where you simply tell React, like, here's my component and I want you to render it into this DOM node. And the first thing that React is going to do is it's going to look at that DOM node and be like, Hey, does it look like React generated markup in this DOM node? And if it's not there, it'll generate the markup for you. If it is there, it'll skip the markup generation step, just register the event listeners, and you're good to go. Um, and we have a way of basically hashing the markup to ensure that it's correct and that kind of thing. Um, that's really fast. Um, awesome. Yeah, so. I got to, really yeah, that's that's super cool. I think one other, one other question, you guys have this optional JSX, and traditionally in the web community, and this is probably more FUD than anything else, but there's this huge aversion to XML. Yeah, that was XML's. a bold move to, to put the letter X in there. Yeah, so so my question is, do you find that most people are writing with the JSX syntax or without it? And why do you have that declarative style? If it's not, is it composable, etc.? So I think I would say, Pete, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'd say over 60% of people like give give it a shot and they stick with it and then some people just choose not to and that's totally cool. Is that is that about right, Pete? Um it's probably more than that. I think the people that tend to not use it are using like CoffeeScript or something. Okay, yeah. So, you know, a lot of languages have this embedded XML syntax. Scala has it, ActionScript 3, and I think there's some part of that that's actually good and some part of that that's actually bad. And I, one of the things that I don't appreciate in languages that embed XML is that they typically have this whole other semantics to it. It's a runtime, it's a library, and it's not just a syntactic sugar. And, uh, you know, E4X, which is a variant of JavaScript that had this exact um, syntax, it also came with this other weird, like, operational semantics that was totally different than regular JavaScript, had its own, like, runtime library. It, w- it was just kind of a mess. But we actually like the look of it. And I think a lot of people like the look of it, and that's why they like templates. And so what we built with React is not about the syntax. It's more about like functional programming. It's about minimizing state mutations. It's about the virtual DOM. But for people that really just love their templates and they love how they look, we wanted to give them a way to be able to structure their JavaScript applications without giving up that 
you know, very balanced structure look of their application. Sure. And so if you were to write a large app in React with just JavaScript and no uh, syntactical, uh, no syntax extension, you'd notice that it kind of gets difficult to balance those braces with your eyes as your JSON gets like really large, right? Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, so then, so then the JSX extension, it just simply helps your eyes balance like, okay, well, this is the start of that div and this is a span embedded inside of that. It's like, it's not meaningful to the, to the framework at all. Um, we use it internally. So we thought, Hey, why not just open source this too and see if people like it? Yeah. And the, the XML part is just because like XML has a very strict notion of opening and closing a tag. And since we basically just translate this markup straight to JavaScript function calls without any sort of crazy transformation, it's just, it's a little more explicit where your parentheses are going to open and close. Does it uh, allow like nesting? Because all the examples seem to show just one instance of a component, right? So it's like, hey, here's how you would implement a hello message. And then this is the declarative way to consume it. And I guess I'm wondering, can you put, you know, a hello message and then put something else inside of that and put something else inside of that with some attributes, et cetera? Uh Oh yeah, this is, this is the big advantage of, um, components over templates. So, like, the re- we got a lot of flack for, like, not embracing templates and, like, mixing our markup and our logic in the community initially. And we did a pretty poor job of messaging why we think that's a good idea. Like, we're big proponents at Facebook for separating concerns in a way that makes sense. And so, we basically think that, like, separating your markup and logic, it's, it's not like that's not real separation of concerns. It's separation of technologies, right? Like, um, if you think about separation of, con- of concerns in terms of coupling and cohesion, like the display logic that drives the markup is going to be intimately coupled together. And they are a cohesive unit because they're both displaying the data, right? So we basically combine them into a notion called a component. And a component is just a way to render one part of your UI. And one really, really powerful part about components is that they are composable. So you can nest one component inside another and build components out of other components, and they're all reusable. And so we think that that's like a huge advantage over templates, and you basically use components to separate your concerns. We don't think that the, the framework or the library can separate your concerns for you. We just want to give you the, the tools that are powerful enough for you to do it for your application. So to answer your question, yes, you can, and we encourage it, and we think it's really, really important. Awesome. So if I can butt in here for a second, I want to go way back to earlier you were talking about request animation frame and optimization. And I have not yet used request animation frame. When I first started hearing about it, it was just something that was experimental. It sounds like now it's they've probably been like a, a year since I've heard people really, you know, the big buzz about it. And so can you explain a little bit like what request animation frame is and how you're using it to get performance? Sure. So we're not actually using it in React to get performance. We haven't really found um, a need for it yet, but it's an, it's an area that we are um, exploring and experimenting with. So what request animation does is it basically says, um, you have a fun, it's a, a function provided by the browser and it takes uh, a function that you pass in. And so it is it like window.requestAnimation frame or window.document. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's actually, I think in mobile browsers, it's like window.webkit request animation frame and moz request animation frame. But, um, in Chrome, I think it's unprefixed. But yeah, it's is, on window. Is that for the whole document or is it for like a specific subset? Um, it's for the, the whole window. Okay. So the, uh, the idea with request animation frame is it will call your function to run right before the browser paints the next page. So the browser paints, um, at 60 FPS. 
Um, so it will, will call your, your function um, within the next 16 milliseconds. And a lot of people are using it to do kind of frame-by-frame frame animation and that sort of thing. The reason why I had mentioned it earlier was we were talking about batching up operations and doing them all at once um, to save on performance. So you can imagine if you do a data fetch, right, and you're fetching a bunch of data, maybe it's a backbone model or something, potentially that might trigger a lot of change events on your backbone app, right? Now, if uh, we were using a naive strategy, every single time one of those change events fires, it would mutate the DOM. It would basically do that that diff of the trees, um, compute the DOM uh, mutations, and then execute those, flush those DOM mutations to the DOM. Um, and it would do it for each one of those change events. Um, if we were to theoretically implement one based on a request animation frame, we could basically wait until all of those change events have happened and then do the diff and then flush to the DOM. Um, this is not a feature that's like currently in the open source. It's something that we're experimenting with, but it's a, I, like, I think that we, we've all kind of thought that it's a, it's an interesting idea and it's a way that we could get some more performance and it's a pluggable part of the API. So someone in the community could go and build it. So off of that, have you guys had the experience where in Chrome in particular, I've noticed that you get artifacts, like if you scroll down the page too quickly, or if you've got one of those CSS selectors where it's every nth row of a table and just artifacts are left over. Do you ever experience that? What in like what sort of artifacts? You mean like pain artifacts or like the DOM is out of sync or something? Uh yeah, like like um one of the in throws is gray when it should be white or you scroll and like part of a text gets stuck in that place where it was, where nothing should be. Um, and, uh, Cause I, I've been, I've encountered this when I've been changing, say like five things at a time, which to me doesn't seem like a lot, but it makes me just makes me wonder about maybe the request animation frame would solve that. For us, it's more about the general idea of batching rather than request animation frame. Um, right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. It, it really depends, I think, on the individual situation where you see that. Um, and I could probably speak further if I had an example in front of me. So I want to jump in and ask a little bit about React with other JavaScript frameworks or technologies. At first glance, it looks like, uh, like, oh, this is a great way to handle uh, the rendering portion of your application. But some of your comments have made it sound like you described how you think the divide between logic and, and templating is kind of artificial. So how do you see React fitting in with applications? Do you use it as a view layer and use something else to hook together your application? Do you build your entire app just completely with React, or, or how does that work? You know, a lot of people are used to having this, um, I mean, as you described it, like this artificial divide between a view and then um, something that controls that view. And I think that's a great place to start. And in fact, a lot of times, you know, Pete and I will start that way when we build an application. But then we'll realize that this controller logic that's controlling this view, that's actually something that we want to be able to reuse. And so we want to be able to nest that inside of maybe another view. And then we realize that that line that we originally started with between that view and that control logic, it was kind of artificial um, to really consider that special. When we want to package up that whole thing into another component, and embed that somewhere else. Does that make sense? And Pete, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of going back to composability and components kind of being the language in which you express your separation of concerns. I could kind of chime in um, about, like, the Instagram-specific use case. Um, sure. So 
uh, when we came to Facebook, I, I joined the Instagram team and um, we were kind of like Facebook had deployed um, React on like a couple of small, smaller components, um, but it hadn't really like been used on a huge, uh, on a huge app yet. And so we kind of ran with it and took it really, really far. And um, so uh, for example, our like Instagram.com is like a quote unquote single page web app in that we actually do run backbone router and we, um, well, you know, when we get a route change event, um, we just call, you know, updates or set state on a, on our like overall page Chrome component to switch pages. So we basically, I've glued, um, backbone router to like a controller component or a component that fulfills the role of a controller. And then in terms of kind of like how we manage data fetching, we use backbone models in some places. Uh, but we also, um, we've kind of ad- adopted just kind of more of a, since the Instagram data model is not particularly complex, um, we can get away a lot of times with just simple AJAX requests to the server and back. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to playing with this a little bit more than I have and uh, digging into it. Are there any other aspects of React that we haven't talked about that are interesting? Or I don't know, Jordan, you, you have anything you want to cover? No, I think, I think uh, you know, React's actually as, as, as intricate as the implementation is. The API and the paradigm is incredibly simple. It's just functions that compose other functions, basically. And those become your components. And if you can just grasp that, like, very simple, that very simple paradigm and run with it, you can actually get really far. And so from here, I think what you just have to do is just try it out and, and try building things with it. And, um, and that's how you gain a, a really deep understanding of it. Yeah. We've had, um, you know, this, this is, uh, it's relatively new on the open source, um, in the open source world. Uh, I think we, we launched it a couple months ago, but we have been building it for a long time. And we do have like lots of engineers of varying, um, degrees of skill with JavaScript using it. And we also have designers, um, regularly contributing like React, like tweaks to React code and stuff like that. So, uh, even though we're fairly new on the scene, um, we do have a lot of kind of like boots on the ground experience, uh, using this in real apps. So is it um, used? For, for most new JavaScript stuff at Facebook? Or is it kind of, there's a, a group of people who choose to use it for their JavaScript, but it's not everyone who's doing JS is using it? Jordan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that all new JavaScript like app products on Facebook are using this, right? Um, it's, uh, I, don't, I don't really run into people that often that don't want to use it. So yeah, I think like there might be a couple places where it just doesn't quite make sense yet. Um, just because it's an existing project or something, but sure. But yeah, but yeah. I mean, we're using it for like our flagship stuff. Like the when you want to create an ad on Facebook, we're building that with React. Like that's a pretty important thing for us, as you can yeah. imagine. Oh, Liking and commenting on Facebook is all powered by React. Um, that's another hugely important thing for us. Basically, ton, like tons of new projects are using it for Facebook. Yeah. So, was, so half the say. web is using it because Facebook is using it. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Like, even if you say like, "Oh, no one besides Facebook uses this," that's that's hundreds or thousands of engineers, right? Like, that's a lot of people still. Well, and it's yeah. millions and millions of users. Yeah, yeah. Do you know of people outside of Facebook and Instagram that are using it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I know that Khan Academy has contributed a lot um, back to React, and they're I think that they're rebuilding a ton of their stuff um, in open source, actually, uh, in React. So if you go on GitHub search and you type react.createClass, which is our way that you create a, a React component, you'll just see tons of, of production code that um, that Khan Academy is building. Um, and you can kind of see, like, oh, this is how, like, a real, you know, complex web app uses React. 
Um, they're they're kind of the the biggest one that I know. But we have a lot of people who are active on the the Google group and on Twitter and that kind of thing. So I, I kind of want to go a little bit deep. Um, I haven't looked at the source code for React. But um, you mentioned just briefly that you weren't using another DOM library like, say, jQuery or something. So that means that you probably had to deal with all of the idiosyncrasies of making this work on different browsers, different platforms, different devices. Has that been a real pain point for you? Or is it well, sort of well documented if you go and dig through jQuery source? Or how, how did you do that? Well, we've, we've got, um, first of all, there's a, there's just a, a huge team that contributes to React. Um, it's the Facebook user interface engineering team, product infrastructure team, um, Instagram web. We're all like, we've all kind of been through the trenches. And so there's a lot of kind of, um, institutional knowledge there because Facebook targets IE8 and above. Uh, another couple of things, we already had a bunch of DOM manipulation libraries um, at Facebook that worked really well. And kind of, I think the biggest thing is that like we have a very, very popular web app. Um, we push out, you know, basically the master of React uh, every week to all of our users. And we support IE8 and we have really good logging. So if we break something in some weird browser, we know really quickly. So that's a, that's a pretty nice, nice way to go about it. Also, uh, quirksmode.org is your friend. They, they basically have like all of the different browsers. I mean, it's, it's an excellent site. And I mean, between that, looking at the jQuery source code and just kind of like accumulating all of that knowledge, we're definitely standing on the shoulder of giants, um, other framework developers that have figured a lot of this out. So do you, you, you mentioned quirks mode. Do you write any of this in strict mode? Uh, it's strict mode. yes, it's all strict mode. But the, but the website itself, um, like is a really good uh, hub for documentation about all the different browser quirks, what works where, and um, it's, it's definitely a favorite of mine. Awesome. Is there a performance implication of using the JSX, and do you guys have a precompiler to, to resolve that? Yep. Um, we, have a, we ship a command line tool. You just npm install react-tools, and it'll give you um, a JSX command that will take your, um, J- your JavaScript file with JSX in it, and it will turn it into um, regular JavaScript with just function calls. And we've um, paid pretty close attention to making sure that your line numbers will always be the same. So there's a lot of people that will write their, their files with JSX in them and name them .jsx, and then run this command on all of their .jsx files and translate them to, to .js files. And then you can run like your standard linting and packaging tools right on your, your tree and if there's, you know, a lint error, you can look at right at, right at the, the correct line in your JSX. That's pretty cool. So I know that a lot of the precompilers, uh, end up like handlebars. You know, you, you, you have required JS integration. Does React also support that kind of thing? Um, we just package a, um, so internally we use, uh, common JS modules. So if you build, you know, if you, you get clone the repo and you run our, our grunt task, um, you'll get a, a directory full of common JS modules. I don't work on the open source packaging too much, but I believe that the CDN hosted version that you download um, is like a UMD, which I think is usable from RequireJS and Browserify and Node and all yep. that stuff. Yeah, global, all that. Awesome. But I'm not, I'm not the expert on that. You know, I might be wrong. Well, that's great. <laughs> we we really want to play nice with with all other tools. You know, we don't want to solve um, every single problem, um, and we don't want to be like you know. We don't want to just, if you want to use React, you shouldn't have to use our, our build system too. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Well, um, it's been a pretty awesome discussion, but we're running out of time. 
So I'm going to push us over to the picks. Joe, why don't you start us off this week? You always make me go first, Kirk. I do? Because he loves you the best. I think that's because he hates me the most. Nobody <laughs> can steal your picks if you go first. Uh, have somebody else go go first. I'm Jameson, looking... what are your picks? <laughs> He's like, I'm fed up with this crap. <laughs> All right. Uh, I have three picks. My first pick is a side presentation by a local developer named Ben Maybe, who is brilliant. And it's just a little, well, not little. It's like 300 slides long. So it's enormous. But it's a really in-depth intro to Clojure. Um, it's, it was done at a Java users group. So it's kind of from the perspective of Java developers. But, um, if you know a little bit of Java, it should be pretty comprehensible, even if you're not a Java developer. And also Ben is amazing. Um, my next pick is just the JSConf 2012 videos. I watched the, the React presentation that these guys did at or at JSConf and then I started watching some other of them as well and they're just awesome. JSConf is in my opinion the best JavaScript conference so it's sweet that they put all their videos up for free uh, and my last pick is Kittens. I just got Kittens last Saturday and I'm like that new parent that can't stop showing you videos of their kids and like pictures and everyone's like oh my gosh like yes you have a kid okay but uh, that's me with Kittens so those are my picks. All right, AJ, what are your picks? So I've been watching the PBS Idea channel on YouTube, and they recently just put up a video on is the internet kittens and going into the semantics of how you define what something is and the relationship between kittens and the internet. And also mentioning that Google's artificial intelligence cluster that they created recently, some 16,000 cluster node, uh, when it was given a bunch of random images from the internet, was able to categorize the kittens um, just because there's so many of them. So, but they just have a lot of interesting stuff on the, on the PBS idea channel. And, and so it's just kind of something fun to watch for five or to 10 minutes here and there. Also, I finally actually set up a website with SSL with my own certificate. And uh, instead of having to pay, you know, the average hundred to $300, I got a free trial one um, from Komodo and it was a pretty painless process and it was really easy to set up with Node because they have instructions on the site exactly what you need to do with all the different PIM files and all that. And um, so that was that was cool. And so I appreciate their free trial. I think it's like 90 days or something, but it's enough you know, to play with it and decide whether or not you want to, to use it and get familiar with the process. And then lastly... So I, I DJ and I was DJing a, my friend's reception last week. And I commonly run into this problem where I've got the mic, but then the volume control is over at my computer and I'm over by the bride and groom and the computer is over in some inconspicuous area. And so I'm not able to control the volume. And so I got frustrated about that after that night. And then I went home and I wrote, um, an app for controlling the volume on my Mac from my phone and um, it was cool. And then I made a little turn server. Well, not really a turn server, but kind of like a turn server, a port forward mechanism that sits out on a VPS so that I can control it even when there's no Wi-Fi on my phone because the phone doesn't get Wi-Fi very good. Awesome. Merrick, what are your picks? So my first pick is JS Git by Tim Caswell. He he gave a short presentation here about about that and I very interesting stuff. 
he's trying to implement Git in in JavaScript with multiple platform support, so not just the browsers, but Node, uh, which is interesting when it comes to different storage strategies, etc. So that project, I think, is just awesome. My second pick is Vim Airline. If you guys are Powerline users uh, and you don't use it for Tmux or any other of those shells, I would definitely recommend switching to uh, Airline. It's all written in Vim script. You don't have to have any of the Python bindings. So I I, I think that's awesome. And uh, yeah, that those are my two picks. Awesome. Uh, Joe, what are your picks? All right, I got uh, three picks. My first pick's going to be soccer. <laughs> I love soccer. <laughs> yeah. I, I wish I had more money for soccer. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It definitely draws a lot of my uh, paycheck, but uh, I love soccer. I have uh, season tickets to the local MLS team, Major League Soccer team. And specifically, I'm going to pick the um, MLS Live service. The uh, URL is in the show notes. It's live.mlssoccer.com. And basically what they give you is the ability to watch every soccer game every week. There's like 17 of them in the uh, Major League Soccer, a 15-minute version of the game. So just all the more interesting action. So I use that and pretty much watch every game every week and just love it. And for those who might find soccer a little bit boring, that gives you a version of soccer that's a lot more exciting. And I wish that the NFL offered that because four hours uh, just to show one hour of actual action is a bit much for me. And then I'm also going to pick the book Serafina, which is like, it's kind of like a young adult type novel. Uh, but it was, it was absolutely awesome. Uh, I zipped through it. It was like four or 500 pages, actually quite long, but I just plowed through it because I really enjoyed it and thought it was well written. What's it about? Um, so it's kind of, uh, it's about, uh, these humans and there's dragons that can turn into humans and there's, they've made peace, but now there's somebody trying to destroy the peace and this, a uh, girl who's caught in the middle uh, of trying to keep the peace. And it's just, it was just a great story, just very well written, great characterization. I didn't feel like uh, it was pandering to the young crowd, but it was well written so that, uh, uh, you know, a, a teenager would enjoy it as much as an adult, uh, much like Harry Potter. I just thought it was just a brilliant book. Cool. And then my last pick is going to be uh, NG Comp for the few people who listen to this op- episode and haven't re- listened to the last couple of episodes. Uh, I'm picking it yet again at ngconf.org. Uh, it's an Angular conference. It's going to be two days of listening to the Angular team from Google talk about Angular and other Angular experts talk about Angular. It's going to be held in Salt Lake City, Utah in January of 2014. And it's going to be absolutely awesome. I'm having an absolute blast helping to organize for in, for ngconf. That is not a phrase I would expect to hear. You're having a blast helping to organize a conference. <laughs> I've heard that's always <laughs> been, been a thankless, I think it's been a blast, like, yeah. task. Oh, yeah. it's been it's been a ton of fun actually. Yeah, it, it, it is a, a absolute. It's a lot of work. It's eaten up a ton of my time, but it is. It's really fun to create to create something, you know, and to build something bigger than yourself. So, and the guys that I'm working with are completely awesome. Ah. So ng-conf.org, and that's in the show notes. Terrific. So follow us at at ng-conf on Twitter. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and go next. Um, so one one pick that I do want to make is that uh, I'm I'm still looking for work. So if you need to hire me, um, I I do JavaScript and Ruby. Um, picking up uh, iOS programming. So if, you know, feel free to uh, give me a call. Or email me and let me know if you're interested. 
other than that, uh, I'm going to pick a couple of things. I'm pretty sure they've been picked on the show before, especially since we talked about screencasting last week. But I've been doing quite a bit with uh, the screencasting lately, and so I'm going to pick uh, ScreenFlow. And uh, the other pick I'm going to have, I use this for my Ruby on Rails course. It's uh, GoToMeeting, and uh, both of those are just awesome. Uh, they're great tools. They make it really easy for me to put on presentations for my uh, students, and then ScreenFlow lets me record it and put it up. So, Pete, why don't we hear your picks next? Cool. Um, so the someone mentioned cats earlier, um, and it just made me think of this uh, this Instagram account that I follow that I'm really interested in. It's Instagram.com/slash/SyrianDeveloper. He's a, he's a software engineer who lives in Syria and is kind of watching all of this madness unfold. And it's really, it's really interesting because you'll see, you'll go from like, you know, photos and videos of riots and destruction and stuff like that to like him messing around with his like cat, you know what I mean? And like very standard internet like style. So it's like this really kind of like humanizing element to like some stuff that like you wouldn't normally see, you know? So definitely check that Instagram account out. The next pick I have, it's probably something that everybody uses, but um, is JS Fiddle. I found that more and more of my development is sadly taking place in JS Fiddle. <laughs> um, cause, just because it's a great platform for um, experimenting and sharing, uh, you know, and it's, uh, we, I just use it a lot to share ideas with people. So definitely have to give a shout out to JS Fiddle. And the last one is um, this app called Hotel Tonight. It's, you know, kind of we've, Especially with like people using smartphones and stuff, we're like gradually moving to this world where you don't have to plan ahead for anything. And Hotel Tonight definitely like takes it in a step that direction. Like you can book a, a decently priced hotel, um, you know, the same day, which is pretty crazy. That um, saved my butt one day at a conference. I was staying in an Airbnb house with a married couple, and the married couple like broke up while I was there and it was really awkward and I left. <laughs> so I had to get out of the room. That's oh what gosh. I used. <laughs> that's, that's the worst. Because so all, all of a sudden the husband wanted the couch too. <laughs> all right. Jordan, yeah. what are your picks? So I actually was going to say Vim Airline. I think it's a great Vim plugin. Everybody should check it out. It's lightweight. Um, but, uh, you know, non-technology related. Uh, I've been enjoying Green, Fra- Green Flash Brewery lately. And one beer that they, that they produce in particular is called Palette Record. And the name is, um, you know, it's pretty indicative of what you should expect. It's a very, very bold IPA. And after you have this beer, you just can't have any other beer because every other beer just tastes like water. And so I definitely recommend checking this one out. And so apart from that, I would say all things Vim. I'm so appreciative of Vim. It's made my life so much better and it's improved the lives of so many developers and after you use it it just kind of becomes this extension of your body and and you can't use any other editor and so there's a lot of people trying to kind of like bring the vim, the vim key bindings to other editor edit, to other editors one of them is called vintageous and it's a sublime extension that lets you have a very vim feel and i wanted to kind of plug that in and see if people are interested in in, in that project on github and uh and so fork it and try it out awesome all right. Well, thanks for coming, guys. It, it was a terrific discussion, and hopefully we get a few more people out there looking at or trying or even using Re- React in production. Yeah, yeah, yeah thanks for having us. You guys were great. Yeah, this was great. This There have been a lot of technical bomb, knowledge bombs dropped. There's mm-hmm. like tons of stuff spinning around in my head right now. So this has been really good. 
Yeah. Well, we've got a Google group and an IRC channel on Freenode, um, so feel free to drop by. Um, it was super fun talking to you guys, and I hope that we can talk in the future too. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks again. All right. Have a good one, guys. All right. Ciao. We'll see you all next week.